This is episode number 32 with Greg Kosh of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Go, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan and I am your host coming to you live from Melbourne, Australia. Hope you're all having a fantastic day. Thank you for sharing your earbuds with me. I know I've been a bit quiet and we're not pumping out as many episodes as we were. I've uh, I'm just trying to slow the production down because, uh, you know, I've got so many cool so many very interesting and fascinating episodes and interviews coming to you guys. And I really want to keep the quality high now, now that we've gone through and flushed out all our best stuff. So today's episode is with a fellow named Greg Kosh, and he is one of the founders of Stone Brewing Company. So if you're listening in from America, you probably are familiar with this beer, they they don't bring it here in Australia, unfortunately, but uh, you know, when I go to the States, I can't wait to try it. A little bit about Stone Brewing Company. They're one of the largest breweries in Southern California, and it was the 10th largest craft brewery in the United States and the 17th largest overall based on sales volume. They have a cult following. You know, people trade their beers. They collect them. They're like collector's items. It's crazy how, how much of a cult following they've created, their community. And uh, they have this one beer, and I can't wait to taste it. It's called the Arrogant Bastard Ale. And uh, their slogan on it is, Hated by many, loved by few, you're not worthy. How cool is that? Like, why, why wouldn't you want to try it? Um, now, Greg is a fascinating guy, and I really, really enjoyed our conversation. I think you'll get a lot from it. It's uh, really, really interesting what they're doing and, and how he started this massive brewery, like, and, and just from humble beginnings, you know, how he started from scratch, you know, what he did to get it where it is today. So, yeah, you're in for an absolute treat. 
So that's it from me, guys. If you are enjoying these podcasts, please do leave us a review. And also, you know, I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email, nathan at foundermag.com. And uh, yeah, as always, check out the magazine. Got to plug my own stuff. So let's jump into the show. First of all, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to speak with me. It's a pleasure. So how did you get your job? I built it. <laughs> Can you uh, start by telling us how Stone Brewing Company started? Sure. So uh, it, it basically it was born out of uh, a passion for, I uh, discovered at that time, a discovered passion for craft beer. You know, I'd grown up, uh, like most people of my era, having no idea that there was anything other than the fizzy yellow stuff of the television commercials. And when I discovered it, I kind of went down that rabbit hole. And eventually I started homebrewing with my business partner, Steve. Well, that was before we were business partners, but um, Steve Wagner and I uh, would homebrew together. And eventually we really felt that we just had to start our own brewery. And... How did that get started? Like it's something that a lot of people would would think from the outside. Wow, that that seems very hard to achieve. So, can you tell us how it all got started and and some interesting stories? And yeah, take can you take us back to to nineteen ninety six? Sure. Um, well, it was enormously hard to achieve, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, back in the early days, I was working fourteen, sixteen hours a day sometimes more, six and a half days a week. I would give myself, uh, religiously, I would, but, well, not religiously, I guess that's the wrong word to use for Sunday for me, but um, I would uh, regularly give myself um, a half a day off on Sundays. When we started, you know, craft beer wasn't popular like it is today. Both Steve and I felt that we'd, we needed to be a part of the equation that helped show people that there was something else out there. It was uh, an alternative to the industrialized version of beer. And we became very passionate about it. So we started off um, in a very inauspicious industrial warehouse. And we started making beers that we knew most people wouldn't like. But eventually, their taste changed. So we, we started off with some uh, strong feelings about what we thought made great beer. We like big, bold character beer. We, you know, I recognize that I just wasn't interested to brew what um, I guess you could say most people thought that they wanted. But instead, we wanted to brew the beer styles that really inspired us. And those tended to be, you know, bigger characters, stronger, more hoppy beers that inspired Steve and I. So that's the path we went down. And I knew that most people wouldn't like our beer. In fact, I, I, you know, recognized that if, you know, at the time in 1996, uh, if a lot of people um, thought that our beer tasted good, that meant we were being, you know, brewing mediocre beer. <laughs> oh, wow. Because that's what most people thought beer was supposed to taste like was mediocre beer. Fast forward to now, you guys are running one of the largest breweries in Southern California. I'd like to unpack a lot of I guess the entrepreneurial insights that is allowed to get you there. Now, I haven't tasted your beer. I hear a lot about it, and when I come to the states, I'm I'm super excited to try it. But uh, 
I understand you're very, very strict in the way you guys produce it, uh, handle it. A ridiculous amount of effort goes into to taking care of your beers before they get to the person that drinks them. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. And you said you're in Australia or New Zealand? Sorry. Australia. Yeah, Australia is is a is, is like is an example of some of the challenges that we we face as a brewery because there's uh, some gray market unapproved gray market import that happens in the country. So we don't officially uh, import our beer into Australia at this time, but I hear that our beer is showing up on store shelves, which is a shame because people are getting a compromised version of our beer. When you brew a big character beer like we do, which is uncompromising in its flavor and aromatics, it's going to require stewardship uh, along the, the way to ensure that people are having it in the way that we intend when we brew the beer, which is fresh and aromatic and very flavorful. So as a result, we have to very carefully steward the, the, the entire journey of the beer all the way from our brewery to uh, people's hands. And this sets uh, the stage for, for a lot of uh, you know, parameters that we have to follow. And it's, it is difficult and it's something that we constantly have to, to work on. You know, when we hear about people gray marketing our beer, for example, we do our best to contact the people responsible and ask them to stop. Sometimes they do, a lot of times they don't. And that's not something that you can, can physically stop, like from, from laws or anything? No, it's not really. Unfortunately, in Australia, for example, gray market is sort of ignored by the law. Oh, wow. It's, it's that they don't have permission to import our beer. In the United States, uh, this, would, this can be shut down rather easily because uh, people have to have permissions to be able to distribute a beer brand. But in Australia, evidently, they don't, which is, unfortunately, it's bad for the consumer because the consumer is being charged a high price for what is a, uh, a compromised result. Well, yeah, look, I, I know what you mean in regards to, I don't know, I, I tried a Heineken in Amsterdam and it tasted so much better than if you if you tasted it here in Australia. So I can understand the difference with the importing and yeah, look, I if I, if I saw one here in Australia, I probably wouldn't try it because yeah, I, I did listen to a few of your interviews and did a little bit of research around how you guys take care of, of the quality of your beers. Right. Yes. I'm still struggling with the idea that you would bring up a fizzy yellow beer in our conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I wasn't aware of these ethics. <laughs> but let, let's get back to the business stuff, because I'm really curious, because you... It feels like you're a little bit playing it down, Greg, but in this space, you, you, you've essentially disrupted an industry. And I'm curious to go back to how it all started, you know, what fueled that? You, you talked about how you just wanted to make great beers and you wanted to challenge the status quo. Was there anything else that, that, that drove that? Like, you, obviously, from the sounds of it, you didn't care about how much money you were making. You just wanted to make great beers. 
Right. Well, we had to make enough money to be able to have a successful business because if we didn't make enough money, eventually we would have to close our doors. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, we couldn't, you know, the, the, the goal was, of course, to be a part of the craft beer revolution. But, uh, you know, we, we, we've had a no advertising policy for our 18 years. And so we, we've actually, you know, been growing at an approximate rate of 50% a year for 18 years on an average annual growth basis. And the, the basic philosophy we have is to brew the beers that we feel we should brew, not to brew the beers that people think that maybe they want. And this is very important because if you look at any art in the world, and I consider what we do art, you know, brewer, it's beer is the brewer's art. If you leave it to the public to curate the art, they will gravitate towards the lowest common denominator. And if you instead curate the experience for them and you create things that you truly believe in, then you're going to get a better result. And we can look for an analogy, the best bands in history, you know, the best bands in history were ones that followed their own muse, were very good at what they did, but went their own way and didn't necessarily try and create the popular style of the day or regurgitate it, right? And it's a lot of times when, you know, who was asking for, you know, U2 or Metallica or the Rolling Stones before the Rolling Stones or U2 or Metallica even existed? Right, they each sort of created their own genre. They created their own uh, niche just by being who they were. I've actually always loved a Metallica quote that I saw on a music magazine in 1991, um, just after the Black Album was released. And I love the, the quote they put on the front cover, which was, "Metallica didn't go to number one; number one came to them." And that really spoke to me. You know, this this philosophy that let's just be who we are at Stone. Let's work on being great. It's going to be our version of great, not somebody else's version. And those who agree with us, they're going to love what we do. And those who don't agree with us, maybe they won't like what we do. And that our loyalty in our efforts should go and be for the people who do like what we do, not to try and please the people who don't like what we do. And how did you come up with these philosophies? Were these, were these philosophies... That you and Steve came up with when you first started, just straight off, or, or like, uh, what what influenced this? Well, uh, so essentially, we did have these philosophies from the beginning. Although I don't know if I would have phrased it exactly the same way. I've had you know eighteen years to think about how to uh, describe it. Mm. But we, we did start off at the very beginning, thinking, look, Steve and I had been homebrewing for many years. I'd been a beer geek for many years. I'd become quite educated uh, about beer. And I realized that I could either use that education that I gained and use my own personal tastes and beliefs when it came to beer, or I could throw that all out the window and we could make stuff that was what people thought they wanted. And I thought, well, if I'm going to throw all that out the window, I'm just going to stay home because I'm not interested in, in brewing generic beers. I'm not interested in brewing mass homogenized, you know, character, no character beers, like fizzy yellow beer from in green bottles from a European country, <laughs> for example. Gotcha. 
And so, so we, we decided right from the very beginning that we had to follow our own muse and do it our own way and, and accept it if people didn't like it. As long as we knew that the result was a result that we were proud of. So you, you said it was, you, you needed to make money, but at the same, at the same stage, you didn't, you didn't brew beers to please anyone else but yourself. True. If you go back to the music analogy, like think of, you know, try and put yourself in the mindset of, of your favorite band, you know, recording their seminal album. Probably they are really focused on making a great album and creating great art and not focused on trying to manipulate their art to try and gain mass acceptance, right? Mm. But while they're doing that, what's the hope when you're finished with your album and somebody listens? You hope somebody's going to like it. I mean, you want them to like it, right? Yeah. But, but you don't want to compromise your art to try and capture everybody. Like Metallica, I'll just use Metallica is really easy to, you know, kind of wrap your head around these analogies with a band like Metallica. Metallica loves its fans. I mean, Metallica honors their fans at the concerts and, you know, they do things for, for you know, they, they love their fans. But if you're not a Metallica fan, they don't care. Why would they care? If somebody doesn't like Metallica, the worst thing they could ever do is try and make that person happy because all of their fans would be disappointed in that, right? So this is actually a path to success. And I realized that, you know, early on, I actually believed it from both a philosophical personal standpoint, like the standpoint of our art and what we wanted to do and what it meant to me, you know, this emotional side of, of me. But I also realized it from a business perspective. If we were going to do something different, unique, special, but really great, then we'd have a chance to do something relevant in the world. However, if we were going to follow along the same path as everybody else, I wouldn't be that excited about it. And by the way, it might be tough for us to ever make a mark or become anything special. You know, there's a lot of philosophy these days, which I would agree is if you want to do you want to be successful, I mean, like really successful, you have to combine something that you love, feel personally passionate about that you're good at. I mean, you have to be good at it. If you suck, then, well, never mind. Right. There's lots of garage bands out there that suck. That'll never go anywhere, but at least they're having a good time. And, and you have to just follow that down with the with, you know, rigorous focus. And passion, not giving up on this ideal that you've set for yourself. And then if you're lucky, other people will appreciate and love what you do. In fact, people that like what we do, that's great. But I really want people that love what we do to really love what we do. I want them to be passionate about it. And not everybody is going to be passionate about it. And every once in a while, somebody feels like they need to go out of their way to tell me that they don't like our beer for whatever reason. And I comfort them. I tell them it's okay. Then they're, they've got um, safety in numbers as they're one of probably seven plus billion people on this planet that don't know or don't care about what we do. And that's okay. So, so many people getting into business sometimes feel like they need to make seven billion plus people happy. But that's, that's a recipe for mediocrity, not greatness. How did you like keep raising the bar and have these such high standards? Because because your standards for when you first started for brewing may have not been 
they might have been a lot higher than someone else's. And how did you gauge that of what was like a quality beer and, you know, what was really high quality that people, like you didn't care like whether, whether people loved it or not, but you were really proud of? Well, you know, quality is a tough word to use. If you go mm. back to Metallica and, and music, you know, what's better quality? Is, is Metallica album better quality than a U2 album, than a Grateful Dead album? I think you'd be, you know, you'd have people with opinions on all of those, right? Um, yeah. And you'd have people that would, you know, argue fiercely for, for their favorite band. But I think we can step back and say, you know, Metallica makes the best quality Metallica and Grateful Dead makes the best, best quality Grateful Dead and so on. So it's not really, quality is a little bit of a term that is thrown around a lot in, in the beer industry. You know, we use nothing but the finest quality hops and the, you know, purest water and the best barley and, and all that. Mm. And, you know, probably by and large, that's true. But it's what you do with it. And, and again, you know, you can have a, a pop band that's, you know, creating throwaway music. You can have a seminal rock band. You can, you know, have folk rock. You can have all these different styles, right? And mostly it's guitar based and drums and vocals, mostly. Same with brewing, barley, hops, water, yeast, mostly. So you can, you can take your art in with these very simple ingredients. And it's not just the quality of the ingredients, because everybody can get themselves a good quality guitar. Everybody can get themselves a good quality amplifier. And today you can even get really good quality recording equipment, quite, quite cheap. It's quite democratized. But it's what you do with it that really matters. And it's not just the quality, although that's very important, right? So our beer is, yes, I like to think it's very high quality. We set very high standards. But we also set standards for ourselves in terms of the character, the kinds of beers, the flavor profiles, the aroma profiles, all these characteristics. And these were more aggressive than what most people were used to. By most people, I mean at that time, almost anybody or very, very few people. Our hardest core fans tended to be home brewers because they knew what was possible in the world of beer. And they loved that we didn't pull back. Today, people understand a lot more widely that you know this, this character and aroma and flavor profile that's available in the world of craft beer. And frankly, how much better I think it is than, than uh, you know industrial beer. So how do you create this... This cult following, you said you haven't done any marketing since you started. Well, to be to be straight, uh, we haven't done any advertising. Like, you know, is, is our Facebook or Twitter account or our website, is that marketing? I think you could argue that maybe yeah. that's marketing. Yeah. Okay. I've got a, a coaster on my hand for one of our beers, you know, <laughs> and it's a coaster. Is that marketing? I would say that's marketing. But mm -hmm. we haven't done any paid advertising in, in broadcast or print and such. No billboards or anything. Okay. Can you tell us about, yeah, the early days? Like, how did you get your first hundred customers? How did you get your first, yeah, thousand customers? Well, we started off draft only. So uh, that required me to go out to a bar and restaurant owners and talk to them about our beer. You know, that was tough because mostly they weren't interested. You know, mostly they just wanted me to go away. They would say whatever they could say to, just so I would leave. But you had to be tenacious. So in the early days, our success was based primarily on shoe leather, just going, continuing going up and down the sidewalk, beating the streets, as they say. 
tenacity. A, a lot of bars and restaurants in the early days put our beer on because I would go back week after week after week asking. And finally, they would say, okay, you know, kid, you're, you're certainly working hard. You, I suppose you deserve it just from how many times you've heard me say no and kick you out the door. So we'll give you a chance. Most of it came as, as people started to discover our beer. Most of it then started coming from poll. Right, you know, push is pushing your product out into the marketplace. Poll is the consumer's demand for it, and consumer demand started to rise as we developed, you know, began developing a reputation. People really enjoyed our beer and would ask for it. But even still, it was tough. I mean, I would I would go to bars and uh, I would have you know bar owners or bar managers tell me nobody's asking for your beer knowing that that was an incorrect statement because I know that people had been in that bar asking for our beer and they would tell me I've been in Joe's, you know, Joe's bar and grill asking for your beer, but you know, mostly Joe just didn't want to bother with this, you know, young company. And he thought our beer tasted weird or too bitter or whatever, but eventually enough of Joe's customers, and this is of course a proverbial Joe, mm. but enough of Joe's customers would be asking. And so Joe would, would put us on tap. So very, you know, grassroots, very organic, very one foot in front of the other. And at what point did you feel like I'm onto something, I've I've made it, and this is going to work? From the beginning, I felt we were onto something because I was very proud of our beer. I was very happy with the the, you know, my own judgment about the, the quality and the character of the beer. And then when we finally uh, had our first break-even month, which was March of uh, 1998, about a year and a half into it, that's when I felt like, okay, maybe we're actually going to survive. And did you ever feel like giving up? No. That's not in my DNA. You know, that just makes you fight harder. I, you know, if, if I have any entrepreneurial trait, it's, it's what I call uh, being unrealistically positive about our chances for success. I was certain, even though I recognized it and accepted and even was, um, you know, perfectly good with the, 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 the knowledge that most people wouldn't like our beer. I also was certain that lots of people would still love our beer. You know, it doesn't take a very large percentage of the world. We're in the United States. We're, point, we're less than 0.1% of the beer market, I'm sure. Right. So it's still a very, very, very small, tiny percentage of people that drink our beer, but it doesn't take much. It just takes people to be passionate about what you're doing so that they become loyal customers. Are you able to tell us any marketing tactics that you used in the very early days and what worked and what didn't? You know, most of our marketing tactics were really simple and straightforward. All focused, I've always been focused on communication. So whether it's, you know, the newer stuff of the social media and whatnot, to early things that we can do, like printing up coasters or on our bottles. I don't know if you've ever seen one of our bottles, but we have, I write quite a bit on the back of them. So there's always communication going on from our brewery about our beers. It seemed obvious to me to, we were the first brewery to put a lot of text on, on a bottle of beer. Nobody else did. They would they would put on the, you know where it was brewed and bottled. Hopefully they would tell the truth about that. Um, they put on the, the government requirement the information. They might have a small you know one or two sentence statement about the brewery. 
And we'd put paragraphs, literally paragraphs on, on bottles of beer that went into our philosophical take on the world and what the flavor profile they could expect was and why we were doing things the way we were doing. And that was an early way to communicate to people that one, they could expect something different. Two, that they could, you know, understand a little bit about where we were coming from and what our philosophies were, which I was excited to be able to share with people. And it was just a fun way to communicate. So we've always been focused on communicating. Even today, you know, we actually have a internal policy on not using calls to action. We can communicate to people. I, I love telling them about our beer, but what we don't do is we don't say, we're releasing a new beer. Pick one up today. Try it now. Get it before it's too late. Right? We don't, we don't do those things. Or instead we say, here's a new beer we're releasing, and we'd like to tell you a little bit about it. Because mm. in the marketing, from a conversion standpoint, it's, it's like proven copywriting to say, get your free beer today or get it now. And what, why, did, why are you choosing against that out of curiosity? You know, we just taken a different tack as, well, why not make our beer consistently awesome and use that as the reason why people. So, you know, I think it's even better if somebody tells their friend, you got to get one of these today. Mm. You got to get, you know, some before it's too late. If we come out with a special release and it's on the shelves and people recognize Stone and they know our reputation and what it's about and they know that it's a special limited release, they're telling themselves, I better get this while it's still here. I was going to say one thing in terms of your marketing that I think speaks for itself is like just an example of of what you call some of your beers, like the the arrogant bastard, hated by many, loved by few. You're not worthy. That just invokes so much curiosity. Did you come up with that? Yeah, yeah. That's always the the guy that uh, that wrote those phrases and wrote the text on the back of the bottle. I got to remember when when I wrote that in 1997, it was a very different time for beer in the world, mm. and it was quite straightforward. I mean, and still today, it is loved by fewer people than it's than it's hated by. <laughs> it's it is an aggressive beer, and most people don't like it. Most people aren't worthy of the beer. It's you know it's it's so it, that was a combination of. Being very straightforward and also having fun at the same time. Like that is very, very good copywriting. Well, I've been complimented many times in the past about, you know, the reverse psychology or, 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 or whatever on the <laughs> bottle label. It wasn't, it wasn't written from that perspective. Hmm. I was being honest and straightforward. I was also letting the beer channel through me in the tone of voice. And that's a tone of voice that I attribute to the beer, not not to myself, although maybe there is a little bit of me in there. This is something I'd like to unpack because I think it's brilliant. And if it wasn't strategic in that sense from a marketing standpoint, like, oh, you know, let's come up with a, a really amazing slogan, which would, you know, invoke curiosity and, you know, reverse psychology or whatever. How long did it take you? I'm just curious around your thinking and, and how long did it take you to come up with that slogan like let's let's unpack the process behind such a brilliant slogan that really, yeah, like you said in 1997 was was quite and still today quite out there. 
what was the what yeah what was the processes did it take you months to think about was it something that you were sitting with and you had like you know 20 30 different slogans or or it just came to you one day like how did that come to you boy one is requiring me to you know go back a little ways <laughs> to come up with the answers to this but no, i can okay. tell you that we my partner steve wagner and i had homebrewed the first recipe for arrogant bastard ale in 1995 and so we didn't release it until it, um a year and a half almost after we opened because it's, it is a big character, strong beer. And while today it's not as out there as it used to be, it was, you know, way out there at the time, much stronger, much more bitter uh, than anything else on the market. So I, I really felt it was important to let the beer kind of talk for itself. And when we, when we were first going to brew a batch of this, we calculated out that we'd have about 100 cases, that we'd be making about 100 cases of beer. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't certain that we'd ever brew it again because I didn't know, you know I didn't think people would, would be buying it. I, I thought it was going to be much, much too strong because, again, there was nothing like it out there. So I partially wrote the label from the perspective of not wanting people to just pick it up out of curiosity, take it home, open it up, taste it, and then, and then pour out the rest because they couldn't handle it. I wanted to warn them and it was a sincere warning. Now, again, sincere warning coupled with some, you know, a, a wink and a nod and, you know, an elbow in the ribs. Right. But it was um, still very sincere. I didn't, I did not want people to buy the beer without being warned in advance. And I figure if I give them a, a, a very hearty warning, then maybe they'll be dissuaded. And for those who aren't dissuaded, there's probably going to be a higher percentage chance that they're going to be the kind of person who would uh, be able to appreciate a beer like that. And so we released 100 cases and they sold out. So we brewed some more and it sold out and we brewed some more and it sold out and we brewed more and more and more. And then we became eventually a, we became a going concern. And that's along with uh, that in Stone IPA, which is our flagship beer. Stone IPA is the one we sell the most of. Mm. So you tested? Well, uh, no, we didn't test. We've never tested. We've just done. So when we brewed 100 cases, we didn't do brew 100 cases as a test. We brewed 100 cases because that plus uh, a few kegs, that was the batch size. We've never really been ones to do a lot of testing, but it depends exactly how you identify it. We have a small restaurant brewery now. And we brew new recipes on that all the time. And is that a test or is it just brewing because we like being creative? Yeah. Okay. Um, let's switch gears. Do you have any amazing customer stories that you'd like to share? Amazing customer stories. You know, it's, it's, it's more about the ones that didn't buy our beer than the ones who have butter. <laughs> you know, it's, it's more about the, the the chain store that that only bought on discount and we refused to discount so for the you know for 14 years they never bought our beer until they finally came and they're they're buying our beer and they're selling quite a lot of it now 14 years later at full price because we refused to discount it's a it's about the the wholesaler who patted me on the head in 2000 
saying, sorry, son, I hate to be the one to tell you, but this craft beer thing is dead and it's not going anywhere. And no, we're not going to carry your beer. But he did it in a very nice way. And that wholesaler is out of business and uh, we've grown. What advice would you give to entrepreneurs? Do you have some actionable items, that the, the core actionable items that you would give for someone that's just starting out their entrepreneurial journey? So be, it's very fundamental, which is follow your heart, follow your own muse, ignore everybody, do it the way that you think it should be done, not the way that other people think that it should be done. And, and watch out for this, this trap because most people won't give you their opinion. They'll give you what they think somebody else's opinion might be. You know, everybody's quick with advice on how something that you want to do will be accepted or not accepted in the marketplace. And I'm sure you've, you've seen that. You know, we can see it in our own lives all the time. People, oh, people will never like this. Oh, people wouldn't do that. People would do that. They, they, they wouldn't buy something like that, et cetera, et cetera. And at some point, you just have to say to yourself, this product or service that I'm getting into, this is something that I believe in. And I'm going to do it for the people who do like it. I'm going to do it for the people who do or would appreciate what I'm, what I'm going for. And Nathan, between you and me, most of the stuff that I am enthusiastic about in this world is a result of somebody having that kind of a mindset. Now, they may ex express it a little bit different or in their own way. But most of the stuff that I've discovered in this world that I love is a result of somebody that's followed their own muse, that's gone their own path, that's ignored the naysayers or charged through anyways, and they've done something remarkable. And thus, it's given somebody like me a chance to discover this remarkable thing that they've done and become an enthusiast and a fan of their product or service. And that's cool. So I just hope that, you know, somebody who's starting out today will give me the chance or give me the credit for being able to appreciate the real version and that they won't feel like they need to dumb it down for me because I won't appreciate it otherwise. And you know what? If I can't appreciate it, that's still they shouldn't dumb it down for me. Yeah, you. it comes back to a little bit. How you said to me at the start, like for you, for you and your, you guys and your brilliant, for you, it's like art. Very much. And I think we can look today at almost any entrepreneurial endeavor and say that it's a form of art because art is curated. Art is created. Art is seeing things, uh, the world or, or what you do through a particular set of lenses, your own lenses. Right. And so you can be artistic in business. I think art isn't just relegated to music and painting and sculpture, right? There's more forms of art in this world. And you can be artful with the things that you do. In fact, my definition of, of art is simply bringing your best work every day and only bringing that. That's art. You know, this is a writer. I mean, we see it every day, right? Is, you know tabloid journalism, yellow journalism, that's all designed to just get to, you know, click throughs. Is that art? I suppose that's one <laughs> form of art. <laughs> that's... But, you know, is it art that anybody is really proud of? You know, no. 
Uh, and then there's, you know, a really well-crafted, you know, article and, and you know, uh, you know, conscientious journalism that's actually trying to communicate interesting things and so on. And then that's that's a different kind of art. And so there's always all kinds available. And it's, we, it's up to us to make our own choices. Yeah, that was that was, that was great. Um, really, really interesting. I was, we have to work towards wrapping up and I have two more questions for you. One. What did you have to sacrifice to get where you are today? What did you have to give up? My life for a period of time. I mean, I did, like I said, I did 14, 16, 18 hour days. So, but it was a, it was a willing sacrifice. I mean, I was very engaged. It's, it's like that old saying of, you know, love what you do and you don't have to work a day in your life, mm. you know, kind of mentality. I mean, it was real work. And it was hard work. And many times it was scary work because it was questions of our survival as a company. But it still was, you know, it gave me a lot of energy and I had a lot of drive for it because I believed in it and I really wanted to do it. But that's that's the primary thing, you know, I had to, to sort of give up. It wasn't such a sacrifice because it's what I wanted to do. Last question. And that was around business disasters, how to avoid them in the future, any any particular failures that you guys have had or roadblocks that you'd like to like to mention? Because it, it, it wasn't all just smooth sailing, right, to get where you guys are now today. Like how many brews, how, how many beers do you create a year out of curiosity? Well, last year we brewed 74 different beers. But we do have a small system at a at one of our restaurants um, that brewed about 50 of those. Mm. And then about 25 of those were um, from our larger brewery. But we have a, you know, we're just a company with a lot of creativity, right? So, you know, not all of those were released in the same way. Some of them are just small batches available, maybe only at our restaurants on draft. Some just go to a local area and so on. But as far as mistakes go, you know, and so even if we sort of make a mistake and we brew a beer that, we may think to ourselves, okay, we won't brew that again because it didn't turn out that great. It's hardly a very big mistake, right? You know, we haven't really made any big mistakes at Stone, which is scary because I know that our biggest mistake <laughs> is still ahead of us. Why do you say that? Because we haven't ever made a big mistake. So, if, <laughs> and, and nobody gets to go through life, especially not business life, without some major mistakes along the way. So um, we're, we try not to make any, you know, big, stupid mistakes, right? But we're human mm. and humans make mistakes. And we've made plenty of mistakes. So I, I'm not going to suggest for one second we haven't made ever made mistakes. But we've never made any really big ones, not any big, hairy mistakes. Now, the size of our mistakes sometimes get bigger and bigger. But as we're a little bit larger company, we can absorb them. Like if we make a mistake and, you know, get the wrong piece of equipment to handle a piece of, you know, to handle a specific function in the brewery. And then that equipment ends up not being the, the, the right one for the job. That would be a mistake. Right. But yeah, that's why I'm, you know, we're, we're um, building a brewery in Berlin right now. Some people think it'll be a mistake. Some people think it'll be a great success. I think it'll be a great success, but Hey, you know, you've got to risk it. I've got to risk making a big mistake too. Yeah, well, look, look. Um, I'm mindful of your time, Greg, and and we'll work. We'll we'll, we'll wrap things up now. Um, just yeah, was there anything 
that you'd like to finish off on for this conversation. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you very much. Uh, likewise, Nathan. No, I think we've covered things very well. You know, as an entrepreneur, I mean, not every day is fun, right? And, and not every day is filled with fun. There's a lot of very, very real work there. But, you know, to try and have fun, try and, and really approach life from that perspective and business life. And, and, and that can happen a lot better when you believe in what you're doing and you really care about it. And so, you know, you approach it with passion. And that's what I do. That's what we all do here at Stone. And that's, that's actually a lot of the strength of the company itself is, is that we work to inspire and bring in people with that level of passion because they feel the same way about it. Fantastic. Well, look, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, Greg. It's, uh, yeah, that was a really cool interview. I really had a lot of fun speaking with you. Sure. Pleasure. Pleasure. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in-depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.